Hi, I'm Emily Abbott. Welcome to The Brain Possible, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts that you can give your children is the gift of hope and possibility. Hope to fulfill their dreams or to achieve all that they want in this life. Hope to walk independently. Hope to speak. Hope to have a conversation with you and to be able to tell you what they are thinking out loud. As for possibility, imagine that anything is possible if only you have the faith to believe it. Your journey to become more empowered, informed, connected, and free from limitations starts now. We're so happy that you're taking this journey with us. The context of this episode is to hear from Joe Newman, the author of Raising Lions, The Art of Compassionate Discipline, and creator of the Raising Lions Method for Adolescents Presenting with ADHD. We will discuss how parents and caregivers can better understand their child's challenging behavior and how to turn chaos into a peaceable, functioning family rhythm. I wanted to share this conversation with you because Joe works with kids that nobody else had been able to reach or have been living with labels all their lives. And he has a knack for walking kids back from years of dysfunctional behavioral patterns to a state of workability and peace within the household or the classroom. They call him the child whisperer of LA. 10 years ago, Joe Newman self-published his book, Raising Lions, which has purely by word of mouth become a bestseller this year. He's been featured on Goop, the Tools with Barry Michaels, and many other podcasts. His method has been studied at the University of California in Santa Barbara, and he's currently writing his second book. He's the behavior problem child who grew up to teach parents about their own children. Here's Joe Newman. Thank you so much for being here, Joe, and welcome to The Brain Possible. I wanted to start and see if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and how the Raising Lions Method came to be. Yeah, so I guess, honestly, my work starts with being the, the difficult child, mm-hmm. being the, the sort of poster child for ADHD. In 1970, when I was seven years old, they diagnosed me with hyperactivity, which was the precursor to the name ADHD. And I was considered so sort of extreme and such a classic example. They actually asked my parents if I would be part of research going on at Johns Hopkins and National Institutes of Health. And, that is good. Uh, yeah, exactly. They were like, this guy is a perfect picture of that. So, and my parents' response was, well, you know, we'll bring him in once. And if he likes it, we'll bring him back. But I loved it. I, it was for a precocious, you know, impulsive, nonstop curious seven-year-old, it was like being part of my own science fiction movie. And I liked the the conversations with adults and, you know, the experiments and the, you know, electrodes on my head and the psychedelic movies and the whole picture. And I was put on Ritalin about the same time. And when you uh, were seven? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And that helped me to sort of survive school. I, I won't say it helped me to learn better because uh, yeah, as I grew older, I learned how I learned better without the Ritalin, but I, I survived better in school with it. Mm-hmm. 
there's a kind of learning you need to do and a kind of sitting still. So, you know, I took myself off the Ritalin at 14 because I didn't, I could start to feel all these, these side effects from, you know, that they're common with that kind of class of drugs. And there was some paranoia and anxiety and, and I, and plus I wanted to learn how to live with my own mind, with the mind that I was given. And so I made it through high school barely and went to college for seven weeks, dropped out, went surfing for a year, came back, worked you know, 30 different jobs before I was 28. And then really knew I needed something to ground me to the world and to focus my energies. And after a lot of prayer and meditation, I I realized I wanted, I needed to go back and work with children who were suffering from the same experience that I had suffered from. Mm -hmm. And I walked into an elementary school that was nearby and said, I want to volunteer with the kids that are driving your teachers nuts. And I, you know, and I had a small business and so I had plenty of time on my own. So I went in four hours every day and just volunteered. And that's how it started. And six months later, I was a crisis intervention specialist for a camp just for kids that were, had had behavior, attention, learning problems, sort of. uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was curious in the book. So they didn't really ask you, they just welcomed you in? The credentials. In hindsight, it's really strange. I think about, but you know, it was kind of an inner city school. There was a a lot of the kids were coming from a crack neighborhood. There were a lot of difficult situations, and I think they were shorthanded. And he must just trusted me because you know the principal really just said, "Come on in." You know, no experience to speak of in the field, but he Mm -hmm. just give you a try, and we'll give you our toughest kid, and, and things went well. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think what really I find so fascinating about your story and your belief is that it's kind of complementary um, on the brain possible. There's a wide variety of conditions that we talk about and that are in our community from ADHD. Actually, ADHD is one of the top hits on our website, but then autism and behavioral disorders, but then we have like traumatic brain injury and everything. So there's lots of things with the brain that all different kinds of therapies and, and healing that we talk about people can do with children who have been labeled with autism. But this is another side of it, I think, more of um, how to interact with them and create new patterns within the brain So and changing the brain chemistry. So I thought I was that was fascinating to me. Can creating new behavioral patterns really alter a person's brain chemistry? Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with what happens when when a person's motivated, and if a person's unmotivated, you know, it's it's one thing. Even like you're, if you're trying to overcome a learning disability, if the child is motivated to work with whoever is helping them or whoever is doing the work with them, you're going to get so much more done, and they're going to help you to understand how they need to get through that maze or that difficulty. When a child's not motivated, when they don't want to be there, when they find power in resistance, or maybe even can feigning more inability than they actually have. Whether it's a practitioner or a mother or father, you have a whole different problem. And you need to clear out the behavior and you need to create a motivating condition where the child feels autonomous, where the child feels strong, where the expectation that's communicated is high before you even know uh, what that child can do. I was excited to talk to you because I feel like, you know, a lot of people define children who have ADHD or a learning disorder or brain damage or maybe a brain damage that came from like cerebral palsy or some other mm-hmm. children with autism by that, by that disorder, mm-hmm. by that difficulty. And for whatever else this, 
struggles they're having. They're also a, a normal human child, uh, a person who has the same urges and desires. They have the ability to avoid frustration, to see patterns, to feign inability if it, if it benefits them or gives them a sense of power and a dynamic, to have tantrums around things they don't want to do. All those things are still in play. And so it's maybe even more important with, with children with, with difficulties to and special challenges that we help to create the most motivating types of interaction possible. Mm-hmm. And we kind of get the, the behavior issues off the plate so that we can really get to the teaching. Creating a, a perfect environment, I think, always in, in, in all different ways, we like to talk about creating the perfect environment for healing yeah. and learning and letting the, 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 the patterns that we want to solidify in our brain, um, whether that's movement or behavior, we want those to create the perfect environment for those. Because so many times, a lot of compromised children in our community have to learn things thousand times, a hundred times before they can recreate things on their own. So I want to go back. And so raising lions, can, can you share with us what you mean by lions? I love it. And I want to hear where you came up with this generation of lions. Yeah, so it's funny. I was writing something for the second book the other day, Lions. I wish I had it in front of me, but I will say it. It was essentially, it was like, when I say you have a lion or you're raising lions, I'm not I'm not saying, oh no, poor you, poor them. You've got a child who can't control themselves or is too willful for their own good. I'm saying, congratulations. <laughs> You've got a willful, thinking for themselves, you know, determined person who is very interested in their power and place in the world and doesn't have problems expressing it. And that type of child can run the gamut of, you know, in all types of different personalities and it manifests in all different kinds of ways. But some of the the key pieces to it are is that sometimes those children are more interested in power in a dynamic with an adult than approval. So if your child is is motivated by your approval and and you explain what you like and don't like and they respond and they want they really want to please you, I don't I don't think I'd call that a lion. But if your child is interested in showing you how much power they have and doing things independently and often defying you just to show that they're strong, maybe even defying you by feigning an ability so that they they have a, a position in that power dynamic, well, that's a lion. And I think lions come to it honestly. You know, some of the, some people are just sort of almost genetically wired to be a little more aggressive, a little more willful. A little mm-hmm. more, you know, determined in that way. And but others, we empower them. We give them lots of choices. We set them in the house as uh, sort of the primary mover at an early age. And then they're looking for a resolution for that. And they're trying to find out: Do, do other people have as much power as I do? Does mm-hmm. mom? Does dad? Does that teacher? Can I continue to control things? And and that sets up a number of difficulties that have to be met with a more sophisticated approach than most people use with children who are difficult. Mm-hmm. And you talked in the book about how children didn't used to present as frequently as lions back when you were raised as they do now because of the way that we are our modern style of parenting. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I think I was this sort of the first wave of empowered children, right? Uh, my mom read Dr. Spock. She was trying to be, I, you know, by those standards, she was fairly permissive, um, but she was doing it in the most loving way she she could and trying to figure out how to accommodate what I was doing. But they didn't know how to control me at all. And I, I really, you know, I eventually had to control myself as an adult. You know, it was probably in my 
you know, mid twenties through my forties and until today that I, I wrestle with my own self-control and developing that, that discipline. But I think what culturally what's happened is we used to have, you can think about mental health as, as being mutual recognition that when, when a person, a child or an adult has a, a strong sense of themselves, like have, having been recognized, being able to express themselves, being able to assert their will, and a strong sense of others. And these things have to be equal. So 50 years ago, 70 years ago, if you were looking at what the, the parental paradigm was, it was mostly we want children to recognize their parents. We want them to be loyal to the community and to the church and to the government. And we want them to listen and, and obey and do what they're told. Well, that pendulum really swung. And the emphasis became we want independent thinkers who can express themselves, mm-hmm. feel heard, who have their sense of agency. So if you think about the self and the other, it used to be other was really big in the child's mind and, and self was small. Well, this led to a lot of self-regulation, some of it based on sort of fear and negation, and that was the motivator, but it was a lot of self-regulation going on. Now you have big sense of self, small sense of other, and you have a lot of expression, a lot of assertion and agency, a lot of will, but not a lot of restraint and recognition of the other because the other's not very big. So this is the recipe to, to where you get a child who has this lion nature. So we have lots more lions. Yeah, I have um, five children, four living. A few of them are lions. (laughs) So this has been helpful for me, too, as I'm reading. I was playing it out loud for my au pair, too, because we have a little three-year-old lion in the household. Let's talk about Madison. I love how you started your book with her. And I just love that story of kind of taking someone who was labeled and people had put her in a box, essentially, almost literally, they put her in a school, a special school. And then they even put her in like the box of the room, that's the quiet room, or the what was it, isolation room. And what we really don't like, on our website, for instance, we have labeled conditions. On there, there's like a, a little disclaimer, we don't like to label necessarily, a lot of people don't I find that that limits people and they don't feel like once they have a label, they can't go outside that label. They're going to live and everything that they see and find is going to be within that label. So can you share with us about Madison and her journey and where she where she ended up? Yeah, let me talk about the label thing first. Because okay, sure. I worked for years in a lot of schools, trained a lot of behaviorists, did a lot of work one-on-one with uh, difficult kids, and they all came with a file, yeah. right? like the file. And my supervisor would say, oh, you know, so here's the new client or here's the client you're going to train the behaviors for, you know, here's the file. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, I don't want the file. Go, what do you mean? Don't you want to read the file? No, I don't want to read the file. <laughs> because I want to go in fresh and I want to see the child and I want to be able to, to draw a conclusion without being biased by those things. Now, I know the file can be very helpful and particularly for specialists, you know, you know the file. But I can't see a child in that file. I see a lot of labels in that in, in that file. And I want to draw my own conclusions. And in the case of Madison, you know, she was eight years old. She'd been put out of public school because of sort of very volatile emotional outbursts and tantrums and defiance and had come to a school where all the kids were having behavior problems and difficulties for lots of different reasons. And things got worse and worse over a two-year period. I had I was working on the other side of the I was the, the agency part of that 
school because there was a school in an agency and they asked me to come in and take a look and see if there's anything I could do because they felt like this is getting to the point where she's going to have to go to sort of a full-time residential place like out of state. And I went in and sat in the room for a couple hours and watched and followed her around. And what I saw was a girl who was really in control of everyone around her. Everyone around her was walking on eggshell. Mm -hmm. Everyone around her had accommodated her sort of very sophisticated rages and outbursts and lack of control. Everyone had simply accommodated and kept accommodating. So that when you looked at it, I thought, okay, well, we all I really know is that she's trained everybody in the room. She's trained everybody. Mm -hmm. She's the smartest one in the room. That's what's going on here. But I also saw, and then and the interesting thing about Madison, and I could talk, you know, I could talk for hours about this because is that she at that time I knew intuitively what to do with that type of child. So I knew exactly how to handle that myself. It was deep ingrained. It was like working with myself, some part of myself. My work has always been like almost like a conversation with my seven-year-old self. Mm. And it's part of the reason I feel like I can set a firm boundary without any judgment. Uh, And even if I need to hold a child, there's a there's a sense of love uh, and respect during that moment because I see the whole person in there. But during that case, I realized I trained a whole group of people to do exactly what I would have done individually. So there were seven people working in unison. I wrote my first scripts, which were like, let's script the conflict moments so that the language is the same. The body language is the same. The sequence of steps is the same. So you make a lot, first of all, a logical map of steps that happen always in the same way. And then let's pair that with language and a relationship that mitigates the power struggle and gives her a sense of autonomy and choice while not moving our own boundary that we need met and see how she adapts. Mm-hmm. But in that, I also, it was when I realized sort of the paradigm of mutual recognition and what happens when that goes awry, when we give the child so much power and then perhaps they through acting out and a need to resolve who has power, they end up having more and more power because we simply accommodate it, creates more anxiety, drives a cycle. They end up being stuck in a in an emotional place that should have been resolved at three or four, but now they're eight and they're strong and articulate and more sophisticated thinking. So you've mm-hmm. got an MRI, a little mm-hmm. samurai, uh, two-year-old there emotionally. Yeah, yeah. You said that... Um well, the, the people today are calling not just the terrible twos, but the terrible threes, fours, <laughs> and beyond, yeah. <laughs> all the way through uh, till they're adults. I think it is, it's a giving them too much. We've given them too much power. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's, and there's a lot of ways that we give power. Because a lot of parents say, well, I'm not permissive. Uh, but if you look closely, they're they're constantly adjusting their day and accommodating around the child. A mm. lot of parents will say, I'll say to them, you know, what are the things that you would love to do as a family, but you never do anymore because yeah. that child has trained you not that that's not going to be successful. Or um, eat. So many people do that. They're like, right. make a different meal for every child. That's right. And so we think that accommodating problem behavior is compassionate, but or difficult behavior, even anxiety, is compassionate. But the truth is, the accommodation creates more anxiety. The accommodating behavior, when we don't assert our own needs in a compassionate but firm way with our children, our children become anxious, and they have a sense of, of emotional abandonment. Because you're, 
they need you to have your own needs and those to be as present as they're, they're feeling their own. And they need those to come together. So conflict is a necessary learning tool about one another, about intimacy, about connection. And um, there's a lot of research. There's a great article in the Atlantic Monthly that came out in May about how anxiety in children is caused by, well, it's exacerbated by accommodations. So, you know, I think that we need to shift our, the children are smarter than we think. And we just, we're just looking in the wrong places for that. But once we learn to sort of speak their language, they'll rise to a, a much greater height than we thought possible. Mm-hmm. You, you were saying that we should think about, I, I like this visual of thinking of, okay, well, we're supposed to be, if we're raising lions, then yeah. we need to act like a lion. That's right. <laughs> and and um, stand taller than them, almost. Show them that we have power as well. And how do we? There, um, so you're going to ask, how do we do that, or is that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it starts with sort of a key part of my method is that we end up spending an inordinate amount of time explaining things to children, um, explaining what we want, explaining what they want to do, telling them why it's fair. I don't like it when you talk to me like that. You know, I've told you four times I need you to put on your shoes. You know, you're going to make us late to plant blank. I need you to turn this off. I need mm-hmm. you to turn it off. When you're sitting at the table, I need to leave the, you know, we give so much messaging all the time. And consequently, we're just working so hard as parents, and we're essentially becoming the child's prefrontal cortex. It's like they've farmed it out to us. Instead of them internally prompting and organizing and planning their thing, we're giving them 10 warnings about when the iPad needs to be turned off. Mm -hmm. And then an explanation when they don't want to do it when it's actually time. And I think we have to assume a different ability and let them step into this place and solve the problem. So I'll give you an example. They did a study at the University of California, Santa Barbara, what happened in an elementary school when they used my method. They did 600 observations before I came in and I did a a training, a little coaching and another training. And then they did another 600 observations and four months later, another 600. And I taught the teachers to use a simple protocol around behavior. And what that was is, is, you know, you've got your hands and uh, on the paper of the girl next to you and you're scribbling something. And rather than say, Emily, I need you to stop writing on other people's paper. Mm-hmm. I say, Emily, I need you to take one minute at the focus desk. And you'd say, why? And they say, we can talk about it after class, but we can't talk about it right now. I need you to go in the next 10 seconds or else it becomes a longer break at the focus desk. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. And the child, if the child went, They'd do the one minute, they'd sit quietly with nothing, with really just nothing to do for a moment, and then they'd come back. And there was no discussion about the behavior needed. If they didn't, they, it was a longer break. And then if they refused that, they would sit in the office for 15 minutes and make up that time. But the key to it was that I was asking teachers to stop talking about behavior. Mm. Why? Because most kids know or can easily figure it out. And when we're explaining, we are stealing that from them the exercise of doing that, figuring out themselves. And mm-hmm. so that doesn't become a habit. And what we saw is that school-wide, there was a 50% drop in all off-task behavior school-wide, 50%. So they measured every time children were on task or they were doing something that was not in the lesson. That's what wow. they were doing. That's and, fantastic. And the big correlation, the biggest increase were in, was in the classes where teachers 
used less information about behavior because it didn't, you know, it wasn't perfect. There were plenty of teachers who were still identifying a lot of the behaviors, but the less they identified the behavior, the better the behavior got. And what we realized was when I say, Emily, take a break of the focus desk and I don't mention the behavior, then you internally go, I need to keep my hands to myself. Mm -hmm. And this becomes a habit and there's no defiant reaction because it's not perceived as criticism. Mm-hmm. internal prompt and you get in the habit of holding you know sort of this mental work of where's the boundary here and mm-hmm. what's expected of me and and it's regulated without any judgment or punitive consequence it's a momentary thing where you have to stop regulate pause come back so you don't instruct anyone to that you work with to give warnings you you, you think warnings yeah. yeah i think you know if you think about it one minute break is it's not a long time. Mm-hmm. And typically, I, I try to make it as easy as possible. I might ask you to move four feet away and sit quietly for a minute and come back. Um, but I think warnings can be very counterproductive. You can set out, if you have warnings in place and you do a lot of them, you want to wean off of that because you're holding something you want your child to hold. You have the habit that you want them to develop. And as long as you practice that habit, they're not going to develop it. Why should they? Mm-hmm. You're doing it for them. So gradually you can move that out and you can start to set small, easy to do consequences that are paired with typically the opposite of what a timeout was to, was paired with, right? Timeouts were paired with information about your behavior that, that puts you on the defensive. You can ask a guy who, who as a child heard 40 times every hour what he was doing wrong. Joe, keep mm-hmm. your hands to yourself. Joe, shut mm-hmm. your desk. You know, Joe, sit down. It was on and on and on. So it's a great relief not to hear that. So pair it with like a lack of any kind of moralizing or judgment or anger and coach them through it. You know, you move from being judged to being the coach and you can do that. And once that happens, children are acclimatized to that really quickly. And it's a relief. It's a much better dynamic forms than being told about what you're not doing right all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, that was another question. You mentioned timeouts. So when I listened to the audiobook, it said that you were no longer calling time them timeouts, you switched to breaks. And I like that. And I think that that would be really helpful for a lot of people. Um, I like the example that you gave of, um, oh, I don't remember exactly, but someone, a three-year-old or something, being told, giving 14 warnings before, and then one big blow-up ultim- ultimate consequence. And that's kind of where I find myself constantly. <laughs> with my three-year-old is like warning, 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 and then finally lose it. And so what you're pointing out is that what right now, the way I talk about that is that sometimes we tend to talk to our children like preachers, but our children are listening like scientists. So a preacher explains what you should do, what's the right thing to do, how you should behave and why. A scientist says, what works for me? What happens when I do this? What happens Mm -hmm. when I do this? So the sequence you just described where you give warning, 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 consequence. Mm -hmm. Okay. So from the scientist's perspective, what they just saw was nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. So no adverse effect from my choice, no adverse effect, no adverse effect, on and on and on. And then when I do it on the 14th time, something happens. So mm-hmm. smart three-year-old is going to start to gauge exactly how many they can do where they get the warnings. And when you're, that tone in your voice starts to come up and you start to get a little irritated, and then they're going to do it. But you're mm-hmm. still going to have to say it 10 times instead of 14 times. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That a smart 
astute child, particularly a willful of course, child. Yeah. That's what they're going to do. And that, and you can't blame them for that. That's good science. And they've now got this pattern, this negative pattern that's not working in the household or in the school that basically you need to get out of. So you work with a lot of children who have ADD, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, autism. Why do you think that the, uh, the raising lions method works so well with them? Well, I think, first of all, I think that we misunderstand. Uh, I mean, we can take them one at a time. So I'm going to run. Okay. No, they're, they're all different. You know, ADHD, yeah. you know, ODD and autism, right? So let's start with oppositional defiant disorder. Oppositional defiant disorder, I think, is just very deeply misunderstood because quite often what you see in terms of a response to ODD is a lot of that you might set up a, a reward and punishment pattern of things that they can get and uh, reinforcers, and but there's an enormous amount of explaining that comes in with an ODD child an enormous amount of talking about behavior. And I'll just give you a little insight into the mind of somebody who's a little oppositional defiant still today. When I was a boy, one of my jobs was take out the trash. And every Tuesday morning by 6.30 and every Friday morning by 6.30, the cans had to be out by the curb. And for this, I got an allowance, you know, and a couple other things I had to do. But every Monday night, the night before the trash had to come in, my father would come home. And when I would hear the car in the driveway, I would think, my dad's going to come in and remind me to take out the trash. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, in the first five minutes, 10 max, he would say, hey, you didn't forget today's trash day, right? And I'd say, nope, I didn't forget. And then about 10 minutes before dinner was on the table, he'd say, hey, well, you got about 10 minutes. Um, you didn't forget it's trash day. Did you, you, you? Great chance to take out the trash. I'd say, no, nah, I think I'm going to wait. And then after dinner, he'd say, you know, we got a couple minutes before the show gets on. You could still, you can get the trash out and be done before the show starts. And I said, ah, oh, no, I, I, I'm going to sit and I'm going to digest my food. And then uh, and literally in the middle of the sitcom, you know, all in the family, whatever we were watching, you know, MASH or something. I could see the show moving to the act break. The act break is sort of, they, they do this build up to commercial. Um, my wife uh, writes sitcoms now, so I, I know the whole jargon. But I, I recognize what and I now realize was the act break. The moment's coming out where they're about to go to commercial, and I would think to myself, my dad doesn't tell me to take out the trash. I'm going to do it on this commercial. And we'd go to commercial, and he'd remind me again, and I'd say, nope. Because you didn't want to be told what to do. Right. Because inside, every time he said, did you remember today's trash day? What I heard was, hey, stupid, I know you can't remember on your own, so I'm telling you. Wow. Look, little idiot, Baba. hey, what's wrong with you? This is what I heard. Now, whether he had, he had that in his voice or not, is I don't know. It's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But what I know is that the way I heard this repeated information about things I already knew was as an insult. And I the only way for me to feel a sense of power was to do the opposite. So I could do it with a sense, so I could take the action and feel good about it. If I took the action after his prompting, I felt bad about it because I felt like I only did it because he told me. And I wanted autonomy. And this dynamic comes up quite often. And most of the programs with oppositional defiant disorder children have massive messaging explaining as if they can't understand. It's stealing away all the autonomy. And the reason they're def- one of the big reasons they're defiant isn't just some neurological dysfunction. It's that they want their autonomy back. 
And the only way they can have it is to do the opposite of what you say. And so the more explanation you do, even if you're you're pairing that with, you know, consequences and rewards and, you know, and, but you're explaining all those consequences and rewards. Well, you're taking two steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, two steps back. You've got a motivating system. You've got a demotivating set of interactions. Mm-hmm. So, what I'm doing is, is I'm saying you need to treat the child with a whole lot more respect and a higher expectation. You can do that compassionately. If you have that kind of relationship, while there's a natural cause and effect environment that naturally encourages the behavior you want, then you'll see a change. Okay. So how would you have preferred to know to take out the trash? <laughs> so in its purest sense, I would have my dad could, could wait and say nothing until... Friday when I wanted my allowance and he could say, you know, you only took out the trash once. So instead of $10, you have five, nothing personal, but you know, I I took it out the other day. Or he could say, look, the truth is it makes me nervous to go to sleep when the trash isn't out because you don't always wake up to get it out. So if you want the allowance for it, I need you to take it out by eight o'clock. And if it's not out at eight, I'm going to take it out. But at eight o'clock, I take it out and there's no option. And I'll, and I'll keep that amount of the allowance. Mm-hmm. So set up a cause and effect and take the charge out of it and stop mm-hmm. doing the information. I'll often tell parents, you know, who are reminding their children, you know, 15 times in the morning to put on their shoes, have the child write their own list that you approve of, of the things that you usually tell them a hundred times. I was just going to ask that because a lot of people recommend for kids in our community to use or even well kids like my living children to use pictures or or some type of um if they're little they can use pictures or a list and i was wondering if that was okay with with you great yes yeah you want to create a condition where they're going to succeed so everything has to be adjusted you know for toddlers i'm not uh, necessarily i'm not saying you break you jump right into breaks uh when they don't understand you know what's happening you might give an explanation. You can set up, there's tools called mapping, which sort of explain, you know, here's what I need. And if you give me what I need, it leads to what you need. And if you refuse to give me what I need, it, it leads to this place where you're not getting what you need. Maybe it's the, the, the toys that you want to play with right now aren't accessible, or the the next thing we're going to do together won't start unless, until you finish this. I need you to put the things away. You know, I can't make you t- put them away, but until they're put away, uh, the TV doesn't go on. We don't make any more snacks. And we're, you know, and I'm not going to play with you on the thing until that's finished. Nothing personal. I can't make mm-hmm. it. And a three-year-old understands that. You're creating a little map. It's like, this action leads this way. This action leads this way. Mm-hmm. And you're giving them autonomy, but you're holding your interaction. It's like, oh, that, my interaction with you has to pause until you fin- until you make a choice here. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. Autism. See, you gave me a whole long list. I know. (laughs) So I will say, let's start with autism. Is that there is a whole spectrum, as you know, of different levels of autism. Yeah. And that ranges from children who are severely autistic, who I don't know that I actually have anything to offer that family. I think there's discrete trial work with children who are stemming and non-communicative. And I don't know how much, you know, if you're out there and you read my book and you and you found application of the method there, let me know. It's not my fault on that strong end. But in, and then on the other end, you have children who have high functioning autism. And then you have children with, with autism, but there maybe there's certain behaviors that are kids in the middle. So let's start with kids in the middle. I, I've had families where they had a, 
this was a third grader. They wanted to have him go to a school uh, that was for children on the spectrum, but his behaviors were a little too severe for the school to accept him. And they were like, he's not a fit. We need less severe behavior. So I went in and trained the behaviorist to set boundaries in certain ways so we could see what kind of adaptation we get in his behaviors. And literally three months later, the most severe behaviors had been decreased enormously and he was accepted into the school. So did his autism go away? No. But he, there was a whole set of things where they had created accommodations where they shouldn't have, where he could, mm-hmm. yeah, we found he was able to shift. Yeah. Well, you, you said that um, you're not sure about, you know, if your method would apply to people on the more severe end of the spectrum. Yeah. I saw it more as we like to talk about every, like a holistic approach. So for the health and development of your child. So that includes everything from food and water and air to, for some kids, detoxing and treatments, of course. But I think that this is one of the behavioral things that does, it, it does apply actually. Okay. If it fits into the the whole wheel of things that we need to be doing to support our children, I think. Well, I, you know, I appreciate it. And I, and I'm super happy if, you know, that that's the case. So uh, I want to be honest about, I don't have a lot of experience. Yeah. You know, ADHD, uh, you know, high functioning autism, autism where children are working with an aid and fitting into a school. Uh, mm-hmm. Those things I've worked quite a bit with. And you work quite a bit with, it sounds like the teachers and the, the therapists themselves then. Yes. A lot of ther- a lot of therapists are big fans of the method and approach. And I think whether it's an, an occupational therapist or ABA, ABA that honestly, I think ABA does not jive that well with my method because yeah. ABA reward lots of talking. They're stealing the economy from the children. So particularly again, oppositional child. And I think, I think they're, that they're doing too much with the work of the prefrontal cortex where, and so they're creating a, a habit that is going to make the child dependent on that aid if it's working or defiant of that aid if they want the autonomy. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I worry about that. And I've, I've had a number of people who are, who do ABA and then they, they have certain clients it worked with and certain clients it's backfiring and not working with and they, they discover my method and they they're ha- they happily sort of embrace it as a method they use with a lot of their children. But the method itself, I think it has one component, it does well, but the relational component I think is missing and it backfires. They don't understand the the desire for autonomy and how that is how that is interfered with all the information that they're providing mm-hmm. open information and how that communicates a low expectation that a child rebels against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great distinction. Thanks for sharing that. I hear about all of them. And at the, by no means should everyone, I think, do everything. There's a um, probably 60 treatments on our site now. So I think less is more finding exactly what works for your family is, is uh, best. You know, there's a, a, a whole category of behavioral things and some things... People should just, the idea, uh, the whole vision for the site in um, my mind was to put it all out there so people know that they exist. Maybe they had only heard of APA and that's all that they were told about because it's a little bit more of a traditional method. But we put yours right up there and others right up there that are like more alternative 
and complementary so that they know, hey, there's these other options and they can read through them and learn about them and choose what's right for their family. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, it's like ABA was born out of work with autistic children. It's based on an assumption of disorder that the behavior, what's happening with the behavior, the problem has to do with a disorder and an inability. And my assumption is based on an assumption of order and ability. Mm -hmm. If you're correct in your assumption, your method's going to work with that child. If you're incorrect, it's going to backfire. So it it just depends on what you're actually, what's happening in front of you. And and at the end of the day, I'm a pragmatist. It's like, I I don't have a, a particular attachment even to my own approach, particularly if it doesn't work. <laughs> I want it to work. I want you to get a result. I want your child to improve, and I, and I want your home life to become. Do you have other uh, therapists or anyone that you work with you to teach the method, or is it just you who teaches the method? I train behaviorists, mm-hmm. schools to help and work with children. I also train teachers. And I actually have a Q&A coming up in uh, two weeks just for therapists. And it's a free Q&A on Zoom. You can go to RaisingLions.com and you'll um, there's a link to sign up for that. So therapists can join that Q&A and start the discussion. Because I've had a lot of requests over the years yeah. for training for therapists. And I've just, my daughter's well-versed in it. I have an assistant who's well-versed in it. I've trained a number of people in the LA area. But in terms of a structured program of training, I haven't, that hasn't been uh, released. Not, not yet. <laughs> Hey, well, you can do, you can do it. Well, now with all the virtual stuff, you can create an online course. Yeah. I think that's in the works. I, I've got to get this second book out. So I'm, I'm putting a lot of time into that. Right yes. Now. So let's talk about your book. What's the second book about? Well, the second book uh, tentatively is titled, uh, Your Children Are Smarter Than You Think. Whereas um, the first book really was about, specifically about children with behavior problems who'd gotten diagnoses and how I felt like our approach wasn't meeting their need. And it was, and in a lot of ways, it was exacerbating the problem, as was the case with Madison. And that I was offering an approach that would help these children to come back into mental health and a paradigm to help understand truly what was motivating the behaviors you're seeing in front of you and then the things you needed to do to do this. So it was really focused on reaching those children when I wrote it. Now, once it came out, it became widely popular with ordinary parents and teachers. And I ended up finding I had a wider audience than I thought because parents said, oh, this describes my kids. And they don't have a disorder. And they're just willful kids. Exceptional children. Yeah, exceptionally uh, lion-like, you know. And so the second book is really, what do the children that we see on the periphery of our mental health, uh, of our learning, of behavior, what are they actually teaching us about all our children, all our parenting, and the culture as a whole. You know, so for me, like I honestly, I think that any parenting approach should consider what's the world that our children are going to inherit. And I think if any of us take a, a, a sober look at um, the state of the world, that we have to admit that we're going to leave ch- our children a more difficult and challenging world than we had. So I'm very much motivated by how do we raise children who can think independently who can self-discipline, who can respect other people and put those things into a into like a, a healthy package where they're able to succeed and be happy in a difficult world. Not in an easier world, in a difficult world. Like 
that's my responsibility. I feel like as a parent, I think a lot of parents, I want to help them meet that responsibility. Is it at 18, when your child is set off into this difficult world, are they fully prepared? Mm-hmm. Are they able to, to hold their emotions in a way and direct those in a way that are super productive? Or do they need the environment to keep changing and adapting to them? Because I think that second option is going to be less and less available as mm-hmm. we have to face these big challenges in the world. And I want our children to be strong enough to do that. So the second book is really like, if we look at what we can learn from our exceptional children, from the ones that have challenged us and made us rethink, they will help kind of shine the light on a direction for all parents and how we need to shift as a culture to meet that challenge. Hmm. I love it. So where else can our listeners find you? You have a YouTube channel, you're on Instagram now, right? And um, if they want to, maybe someone hears it. I think there's so much that people can learn just from those two resources and reading the book. But also if someone is like, I need to work with him because I just have something. <laughs> How can they get in touch with you? Well, I do Zoom Zoom consults with people all over the world. Okay. I have a family in Saudi Arabia and a whole bunch of families in Australia and some in Europe and Canada and Toronto and East and West Coast, et cetera, et cetera. So um, people find out about me through podcasts like this and they schedule some time. You can go to raisinglions.com, the contact page, and you can just schedule something right there. And if you have a difficulty... Uh, with that, then maybe you're in India or something and the times aren't working. Just send me an email. We'll figure it out. I, there is an, um, we have a growing audience, but it's fascinating to see where people are actually listening from. And in all those countries you just mentioned. I know. I did a Zoom call uh, about six weeks ago and there was a woman who stayed up till whatever, two or three in the morning at, uh, for, in India. And mm-hmm. just to listen, and she ended up writing a lovely uh, blog on how she'd applied the method with her 17-month-old, which I was, you know, always <laughs> surprised. But she had a, she really under, she she came to a really acute understanding of sort of the principles, and she applied it in what I thought was a, a very effective and compassionate way with a 17-year-old who was, you know, having huge tantrums and throwing food all over the house, and um, and how she did a gradual course and turned that around in a matter of like 10 days. So yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, we all just need to know when you do it. Gosh, it's going to take a little while because we've got to repattern all their habits, their current habits. Right, right. That aren't working. Yeah. <laughs> if you want me to circle back to ADHD, because we never talked about it. Yeah, sure. I'd love to hear if you have anything uh, particularly to add about how your method works. I mean, I think that's probably your biggest audience, isn't it? Yes. And it's really the one closest to home because it's my own experience. Yeah. Okay. So I want to hear all about that. So when I first started doing the program, I was at a summer camp with a lot of kids who were ADHD. And the second year there, I was I was the head of education. So I had a group of teachers that um, I taught. To, and we all used the same method. I asked children to take a break in the classroom. So I'd have a group of 10 kids, we'd be doing a lesson, and somebody would, you know, give the other, somebody else a kick or an insult or grab something. And, you know, and I'd say, you know, Cody, I need you to take a break for a minute. And at first, he'd get very upset. And he'd say, no, no, I won't take a break. Not a big deal. But if you don't take a break, I need somebody to take you out for five minutes. You just stand at the threshold, watch the lesson, come back in a minute, watch the clock. And, and the first week, we had to drag a lot of kids out. 
But as soon as they saw there's a simple pattern that if you take the one minute break, you come right back. And I was pairing that pattern with where I wasn't identifying the behavior. So they didn't feel a need to defend it. I say, look, um, I can't, uh, we can talk about it later. It's no big deal. Um, I can't make you take the break. But if you don't take the short one, someone will take you out until you take a long one. I'm not mad at you. I didn't say you did anything wrong. Very important, that tone. And what happened is by the end of the week, kids would take that break. And, And that break was a prefrontal cortex exercise for impulse control, among other things. Because they were stopping within a very short period of time, even if they were emotionally upset, they were getting up, walking to the threshold of the door and standing quietly for a minute as they looked at the clock. That's the attention needs to be exercised. One of the big challenges with ADHD kids is mm-hmm. that if they is that they're typically smart and they're tenacious and you get into a pattern of telling them about things, but they don't, they're not good at, they're good at avoiding the, first, the things they don't want to do, including self-regulation. And so the goal is, can we give them a chance to, in small bursts throughout a day, exercise some self-regulation, some reciprocity? And that's easily done when you take all that charge out and you're not reminding them of the things they're doing wrong. So in the middle of that summer camp session, three and a half weeks in, half the kids at camp go home and the, the, the half they're staying for the whole summer remain. And the ones that went home are replaced by a new group, right? So you get 10 kids in a class, five of them are know your method and five of them are in the class for the first time. And you say, you know, Christopher, I need you to take a break for a minute. He starts getting really upset. Well, Cody, that first day, I remember seeing the kids who knew the program would turn to the kid who was struggling and they'd say, hey, it's no big deal. If you take the break, he lets you come right back. He's not mad at you. And Because they had internalized that I can self-regulate in this room and nobody judges me and I never have to defend my behavior and there's no big punishments. Mm. There's no threats. There's no reminding me of what I'm doing wrong. It was like a, a happy place for the impulsive child, but a place where where I might give 20 breaks in an hour to this group of 10 kids who would shuffle to the door, stand there, look at it, come right back, boom, 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 happily without a power struggle. Mm-hmm. And self-regulation was happening and attention was happening and the, the arguments were dropping away, okay? I was really just intuitively doing what, what I had needed, you know, as a child, but no one knew how to do. I only mm-hmm. understood how to do it and give it to myself as an adult. Fortunately, I had, you know, this relationship with all these kids that were very much like me, where I could sort of, it was almost like reparenting that child inside of me that was still hurting. Uh, yeah. It was therapeutic for me, at least as therapeutic as, for me as it was for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's ADHD. We, it, it easily gets us into these cycles of over-information, of judgmental responses, of assuming lack of ability. But mm-hmm. They're not acting out because of a lack of cognitive ability. If they're acting out, it's because they're impulsive and they're thinking of 30 different things at the same time. And eventually that could lead to great things if they can keep their hope and they can keep developing their abilities. So. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so common these days. Um, girl, my daughter had over for a sleepover last night. So tells me just like it's part of her, she has ADHD. So I, I wouldn't have noticed, but she was talking like it's, well, I can't do this and I have to do this because I have ADHD and I'm difficult for my mother. And I was like, oh, <laughs> but I, use, I was labeled as that as well. 
um, well, ADD, not ADHD. What do you have to say about the attention part of it? Does your method help at all with their attention? Absolutely. Absolutely. The attention, attention has to grow like an, uh, like a muscle. And this is the thing that's not talked about. I'm always concerned with, you know, there's lots of people who will deal with the neurological problems that are not going to shift and that are, and there, but I'm interested in the nature part of it equation. Like what are the things we can do to mitigate the problem? What are the things we can do to shift things? And, you know, one of the interesting anomalies maybe about ADHD is that ADHD and ADD are usually accompanied by a higher than average intelligence statistically. And why is that? That's a strange, you know, but that's, that's been the case. They've followed that for 50 years. And I would argue that, that, you know, when the children, children develop their, their minds by gradually learning how to integrate all the different ways they're attending. So a toddler, it's not that a toddler isn't reasoning or an infant isn't reasoning, and that's why they're incapable of completing tasks. It's that they're taking in 30 different types of things at the same time, and they haven't learned to integrate them. Mm -hmm. So the way it feels for me is that ADD and ADHD children manifest in different ways are just integrating more types of, they're taking in more attention. They're attending to more things, not less, but because they're attending to more, they can't complete the one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this takes time to develop. So if you get a, a kindergartner in there and you have one that, that started out attending to 15 things and had to sort of learn how to focus on two, and then you had another one who started thinking of 30 things and had to focus on two, that pairing down is going to take a little more time. So that child isn't, it's not that they're, they're not bright or they're not cognitively capable, but they need to practice and they need to learn how to organize all that's going on in their mind. And that might take long. Mm-hmm. You know, they flower later. My wife graduated third to the last in her high school class, never went to college, and then became a very successful improv comedian who traveled with Whose Line Is It Anyway, and then wrote and sold sitcoms for years and did very well because she had an instinct for comedy. But she didn't flower and get those that work until she was in her mid to late 30s. It took time mm-hmm. to organize all that. And I think, mm-hmm. I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but I think that ADD and ADHD are signs of a tangential thinking. Okay, They go from one thing to another, to another, to another, yeah. very quickly. And it's hard to complete a task, but it makes you highly creative in your thinking. Mm-hmm. So there's an up and a downside. And we need to mitigate the down and, you know, strengthen the good so that we find our place in the world. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that's beautiful. I think that um, I'm definitely, I've learned a lot from your book and I'm taking this away. And I hope that our listeners will also be able to learn from this episode as well and, and be able to apply some of this to their, their families and their children. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Joe. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and were able to learn something new to support you and your family on your journey to wellness. To learn more about Joe and the Raising Lions Method, definitely read his book, Raising Lions. You can also find him on RaisingLions.com, on Instagram, at Raising Lions, and on his YouTube channel. As always for me, the more I learn, the more I know I don't know. And most importantly, the more I know, the better I do. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a line on Apple Podcasts on the app and leave us a review. Share, share, share. It means so much to us. Thank you.